So we'll see what the report says. Let's see if it's fair. Uh, I have no idea when it's going to be released. It's going to be released just now, as it turns out. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Well, to the Attorney General, anyway. I got anyway. the feeling that something ain't right. Who knows if it is? I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle, on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, in Janesville, Wisconsin, on WADR, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM950, KTNF. Stay dry, uh, Minneapolis. It's, uh, the flooding's getting pretty bad up there. Also, coast-to-coast and around the globe, on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell and harried fellow says me from bradblog.com well we are throwing uh, everything out the well we're not throwing everything out the window we are going to uh, restructure this here on the fly i've got a guest standing by kim zetter will be joining us with a stunning report uh, on yet another hack of yet another voting system that's going to come up one way or another, uh, I promise you, t- uh, this hour. But uh, just minutes before we went to air here, it uh, looks like the uh, special counsel Robert Mueller has finally delivered his report, his long-awaited final report on the Russia investigation and the investigation into Donald Trump's potential obstruction of justice of that investigation to Attorney General Bob Barr, um, uh, William Barr, I'm sorry. That is, see how confused I am? So (laughs) forgive me that I'm working uh, literally from material that is just now breaking as we go to air uh, from AP. Forgive me for uh, reading this along with you because we don't yet know much of anything other than the fact that this has been delivered to Attorney General Barr, as far as I can tell. The comprehensive report, still confidential, marks the end of Mueller's probe, but sets the stage for big public fights to come, says AP. The next steps are up to Trump's attorney general, to Congress, and in all likelihood, federal courts. The Justice Department said Robert Mueller delivered his final report to the attorney general and officially concluded 
his probe of Russian election interference and possible coordination with Trump associates. The report will now be reviewed by Barr, who has said he will write his own account communicating Mueller's findings to Congress and to the American people. Barr said that he could send his account to Congress quickly. He released a letter that was sent to the uh, heads of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. This would be Lindsey Graham and uh, Dianne Feinstein in the Senate. I'm sorry, the Judiciary Committees there and the Judiciary Committees in the House, led by Democrat Gerald Nadler and Republican Doug Collins. Uh, he cites the uh, statute for the special counsel and that he is to receive that report and then decide what will or will not be delivered to Congress and to the public. He said, I am reviewing the report and anticipate that I may be in a position to advise you of the special counsel's principal conclusions as soon as this weekend. This in that letter to the top Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate with no details released at this point, AP says it's not known whether Mueller's report answers the core questions of his investigation, namely, did Trump's campaign collude with the Kremlin in some way to sway the 2016 presidential election in favor of Trump? Also, did Trump take steps later, including by firing his FBI director, to obstruct the probe? But the delivery of the report does not mean the investigation has concluded without any public charges of a criminal conspiracy between the campaign and Russia or of obstruction by the president. AP says it's unclear what steps Mueller will take if he did uncover what he believes to be criminal wrongdoing by Trump, especially in light of the Justice Department's legal opinions that have held that sitting presidents may not be indicted. The mere delivery of a confidential report is sure to set off immediate demands, including in the Democratic-led House, for the full release of Mueller's findings. Barr has A.G. Barr has said he wants to make as much public as possible. He reiterates that again in the letter that he sent to Congress and that any efforts to withhold details uh, Democrats have promised will prompt a tussle between the Justice Department and lawmakers who may subpoena Mueller and his investigators to testify before Congress about the report and about the process used to compile it. Such a move by Democrats would likely be vigorously contested by the Trump administration, as AP notes. Uh, Des, you were able to grab some audio. This is... Uh, this is Representative Adam Schiff, who's the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. He was on MSNBC with uh, Ari Melber, and this is what he had to say. The key question, though, is will Bill Barr live up to the commitment that he made to be as transparent as possible, which would require making public the Mueller report? Uh, we voted overwhelmingly uh, in the House to do that. Uh, but for Lindsey Graham's uh, stopping that bill in the Senate, I think the Senate would have voted overwhelmingly to make the Mueller report uh, public as well. Uh, but one thing I will add, Ari, is the report itself, as important as that will be, um, is not as important as the underlying evidence. Uh, and in particular, uh, of concern to us in the Intelligence Committee, any evidence of compromise, whether it was criminal or not, any evidence that a U.S. person, the president, or anyone around him uh, may be acting uh, in the foreign interest of an adversary, not in the interest of our country. 
That's Congressman Adam Schiff giving his first response to the uh, news just breaking minutes ago that uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller has delivered his report, whatever is in it, to the Attorney General William Barr, who now decides what happens with that report. As AP notes, the conclusion of the investigation does not remove legal peril for the president. Trump still faces a separate Justice Department probe in uh, in New York into hush money payments during the campaign to two women who say they had sex with him years before the election. He's also been implicated in a potential campaign finance violation by his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, who says Trump asked him to arrange those transactions. That would be a campaign finance conspiracy felony for which Michael Cohen has pled guilty and is going to jail uh, within a matter of weeks, I believe. Federal prosecutors also in New York have been investigating foreign contributions made to the president's inaugural committee. Uh, So far, over the 21-month investigation, Mueller has brought charges against 34 people, including six aides and advisors to the president and three separate companies. The special counsel brought a sweeping indictment accusing Russian military intelligence officers of hacking Democrat Hillary Clinton's campaign and other Democratic groups during the 2016 election. He charged another group of Russians with carrying out a large-scale social media disinformation campaign against the American political process that also sought to help Trump and Clinton. So uh, obviously there is much more to go, no matter what it is that is said in this report, which, uh, as uh, Bill, uh, again, uh, Bill Barr, yes, Bill Barr uh, says, uh, could be summarized to Congress as soon as this weekend. Don't know if that indicates that the report is really short, that he would be able to summarize it that quickly. Uh, We don't know. We don't know much of anything other than what I've just shared with you at this uh, at this moment, at this minute, as it just breaks before airtime. No doubt we will have much more on all of this in uh, our next thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Uh, But until then, we're looking towards 2020 and um, replacing this uh, president. I'll just call him that this president, Donald Trump. And to do that, I want to reflect back at another president who never faced a special counsel, Jimmy Carter, who uh, faced a landmark today. So we'll jump back into that story next, which ties into my conversation with Kim Zetter about a remarkable new hack of a voting system. All of that is straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com slash donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day 
making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Amy, what you want to do? I think I could stay with you yeah. for a while. We don't really... Uh... We don't really have that many Jimmy Carter-related songs, do we? I don't think we have any. <laughs> well, that's one. That's actually about Amy Carter. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, and I'll explain why I'm talking about Jimmy Carter today in a moment, but uh, at, during over the break there, some additional news uh, from AP. Well, they call it AP Source, says Special Counsel Robert Mueller is not recommending any further indictments in the Russia probe. Hmm. We'll see if AP if AP's source has that right. Uh, that came in just uh, a few minutes after Fox News, and I wasn't even going to cover it because, you know, it's Fox News. Uh, after Fox News had also sent out an alert, Special Counsel Robert Mueller is not recommending any further indictments in connection with the Russian with the Russia collusion probe. Fox News has learned. So take that for what it's worth. But then uh, AP, the far more reliable news source, uh, says something similar. We will keep our eyes on that story in the days ahead, no doubt. And I'm sure everyone (laughs) else's eyes are on it as well uh, for the next several days. Um, Anyway, uh, getting back to some of what we had hoped to talk about today, a president who did not need a special counsel and uh, was not uh, facing uh, seeing his uh, associates facing jail time and everything else. Nearly four decades after voters unceremoniously rejected then-President Jimmy Carter's bid for a second term, the 39th president has now reached a milestone that electoral math cannot dispute. He is now the longest living chief executive in American history. Well, I don't know. Maybe uh, Donald Trump can dispute that electoral math anyway. He'll come He'll up try. with something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Friday was the 172nd day beyond Carter's 94th birthday, exceeding by one day the lifespan of former President George H.W. Bush, who died on November 30 at the age of 94 and 171 days. Both men were born in 1924. This is yet another, uh, and and there's a reason I'm uh, covering all of this. Don't worry. Uh, It's another post-presidency distinction for Carter, whose legacy since leaving office has long overshadowed both his rocky White House tenure and the remarkable political rise that led him from family peanut farmer to the White House in 1976. The achievement also defies medical odds, coming more than three years after Carter announced he had melanoma, that had spread to his liver and his brain. He underwent treatment and miraculously ended up receiving a clean bill of health. I remember covering both of those, uh, the sad announcement that it sounded like he was in trouble. And then a year or so later, the announcement that uh, his cancer is gone. Yes. So, so far, that seems to be holding up. Uh, no special celebrations are planned, according to the... Um, Spokesperson for the former uh, president's Carter Center, which Carter and his wife, Rosalind, who is now 91 herself, 
Founded in Atlanta in 1982 to focus on global human rights issues, the center's decades of public health advocacy, election monitoring, and conflict resolution around the world have redefined the role of former presidents who, before Carter, often retired to relative obscurity. Uh, the spokesperson said that we at the Carter Center... Uh, sure are rooting for him and grateful for his long life of service that has benefited millions of the world's poorest people. Carter has continued teaching, writing, and helping the Carter Center to evolve. The former president and his first lady still live in Plains, Georgia, a town of about 750 people, where they were both born, raised, and married 73 years ago. Oh, that's so cool. A devout Christian, Jimmy Carter regularly teaches Sunday school at the Maranatha Baptist Church, which draws hundreds of visitors to planes for each session, uh, and the Carters pose for pictures with each attendee that turns up. The uh, former president has hosted Bernie Sanders, a 2016 and 20, now 2020 presidential camp, uh, candidate, for a panel at the Carter Center. He told the audience, in fact, that he voted for Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton in the 2016 Democratic primary. He has also been meeting with a number of 2020 candidates who have been making the pilgrimage to Plains to meet the former president. As to what's next for Carter, uh, he has at least one more accomplishment on his mind, pointing often to the Carter Center's long-running effort to eliminate guinea worm disease, a, paras a horrible parasitic infection attributed to poor drinking water around the world. There were, in 1986, reportedly three and a half million cases in 21 different countries back when the Carter Center began its uh, laser-like focus on eradicating this uh, scourge. That was uh, 1986, three and a half million cases. In 2018, Thanks to the work of the Carter Center, there were just 28 wow. cases worldwide. From three and a half million to just 28, that is success. That is a success, uh, although he wants to, uh, he says, I'm hoping that I will live longer than the last guinea worm. Oh, man. Uh, that in a, uh, a British television interview in 2016, he said, that's one of my goals in life, and I think I have a good chance to succeed. Well, if anyone does... Uh, I think he does. He has also succeeded in uh, helping to encourage free and fair elections around the globe, though the Carter Center does not monitor elections in the United States for a number of reasons. Among them, election uh, uh, voting systems in the U.S. do not meet the minimum criteria for the Carter Center's observers. And Carter has recently said that the U.S. system has, has devolved into a form of oligarchy, given the massive amounts of corporate uh, and uh, corporate campaign spending uh, and funding from wealthy donors in our elections. So it's a big day for Jimmy Carter. But as noted, I'm not mentioning him today for that landmark alone of being the now longest living U.S. president in history. Way back in the wake of the controversial 2004 election in Ohio, when the uh, Buckeye state found itself as the decisive state uh, in that uh, contest, that re-election contest between George W. Bush and John Kerry, 
Ohio was the last one to report its uh, results. That was the make-or-break state, as it turned out that year. And after that election, a so-called Blue Ribbon Commission was set up by Republicans. Uh, it was meant to look at the problems that occurred in the 2004 election and to offer recommendations on how to correct them for the future. There was, as you may recall, a lot of controversy about electronic voting systems in 2004, ballot counting that took place beyond the eyes of the public, beyond the eyes of the media. And uh, there was also long lines to vote. I believe the last ca the last vote was cast at Kenyon College in Ohio at about 2 a.m. in the morning. There was various forms of voter suppression under then Ohio Secretary of State J. Kenneth Blackwell. Well, the panel that was created by a group of Republican operatives was to be led, was in fact led by former President Jimmy Carter, along with. Bush family consigliere James Baker, who was, as we noted in great detail at the time at Bradblog.com, a dubious choice given that he was the one who led the year 2000 election fight in the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of George W. Bush to argue that votes in Florida across the entire state of Florida in 2000 should not be counted. He was successful in that, and then somehow he ended up heading this panel. Well, the way the reason he headed the panel is because it was a panel that was put together by Republican operatives who sort of, I have argued, sort of hoaxed Jimmy Carter into taking part in this Blue Ribbon Commission. The 2004 panel was different than one it was meant to look like one that was created by Congress after the 2000 election. That one was led by Jimmy Carter and former Republican President Gerald Ford. But it, so it was meant to sort of look like that, look like that public commission. But it was really a private commission put together by these Republican operatives. Jerry Ford was too ill by that time to lead the panel with Jimmy Carter, even if the uh, GOP operatives had wanted him to. So the uh, 2004 National Election Reform Commission, as we covered in depth at the time, was largely meant to come out with a recommendation for national photo ID voting restrictions. That was the really the whole point of the Republicans putting this together. It was in itself a scam, this commission. And then, as we predicted it would, it in fact came out with that finding for a uh, national photo ID voting restrictions. Uh, even with Carter as the co-chair, though the commission noted that such policies should only be implemented after a national ID system was put in place and everybody had one. So sure, photo ID was fine so long as everyone had one, which they do not. And in fact, Republicans have been preventing a national ID system now for many, many years. They don't want one. Uh, but that part of the, recommenda uh, the commission's uh, recommendations was largely ignored by the GOP voter fraud fraudster crowd who still cite the Baker-Carter Commission as calling for photo ID restrictions, not mentioning that they said only after everyone actually has one. What? They're making a bad faith recommendation? Gosh. And not those Republicans that I know. Anyway, there was also another finding of note from the commission that I have cited uh, many times over the years. 
They found that the greatest threats to election integrity and election security does not come from voters, does not come from voter fraud, from those who might try and and commit it by somehow voting twice or something at the polling place, as Republicans like to pretend happens, even though it doesn't. But the greatest threat, in fact, comes from election insiders, election officials or voting system vendors who the commission confirmed posed the greatest threat to elections in the U.S. Not the voters who who they claim show up, claim to be someone else at the polls, but actual election insiders, election of, uh, uh, officials, folks who program the voting machines. As the commission's final report noted at the time, quote, there is no reason to trust insiders in the election industry any more than in any other industries. That's a point that I try to underscore all the time on this show and at bradblog.com over the past 10 or 15 years, but it seems some people never actually learn. That, even as Democrats, as we recently discussed on this show, are planning now to employ online voting of some sort, internet voting, phone voting, smartphone voting, some sort, in next year's 2020 presidential caucuses. To no small amount of chagrin from, I guess, Luddites like me, who uh, think we shouldn't have to trust private companies who are running Internet voting schemes that can't be overseen by the public. Well, joining us next is longtime election integrity and cybersecurity journalist Kim Zetter with the remarkable tale of what we have just learned this month out of Switzerland where after using online voting in a number of elections in a number of places around the country in recent years, they are now set to roll out that system for upcoming nationwide elections online. But before doing so, they decided to allow for a month-long public hack test of their vaunted system. Can you imagine what happened next? You don't have to. That story is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We spoke a week or so ago with journalist Steve Rosenfeld about the Democratic National Committee's new directive to states that plan to run caucuses during the very crowded 2020 presidential primary race next year instead of primaries, which the party is encouraging as a more egalitarian way to allow voters to select its nominee for the crucial 2020 presidential election. But for those uh, state Democratic parties who choose instead to stick with caucuses, such as Iowa with its first-in-the-nation caucus set for February 3rd of next year, the party has mandated that some form or another of remote voting must be made available for those who are not able to attend caucuses in person. 
That has sent a number of those state Democratic parties which run their own caucuses versus primaries, which tend to be run by state and county election officials. It sent those uh, Democratic Party officials out to consider adding some form of online or smartphone voting to the already sometimes quite confusing and hectic caucus process. Rosenfeld warned that there still seems to be much confusion among Democratic Party officials about how this process may play out, what systems may be uh, used or really tested for the first time in that crucial nominating process next year. He cited a number of notorious online voting failures, such as those carried out by the Utah State Republican Party, Back in 2016 and in 2018 and in a number of online party elections across Canada, which resulted in various disasters, including one election that he reports was outright stolen by a conservative party in Alberta in 2017. But for Democrats and even states and counties around the country who may be considering some form of online voting as being pushed by a number of private online and smartphone voting vendors, Some may look to Switzerland, where a number of that nation's cantons, that's essentially what we would consider to be states in the uh, Swiss Confederation, uh, a number of them have been using online e-voting for some time. So confident is Switzerland in its online voting system that the uh, Swiss Post, that's the National Post Office, which runs elections in in Switzerland, uh, last month... As required by a legal directive, the Swiss Post opened its e-voting system to a public hacker test, which began at the end of uh, February and wraps up this weekend. The test, known as an intrusion test, was meant to allow independent IT specialists uh, to register to put the system through its paces by attempting to manipulate the results of a fictitious online election even uh, releasing the system's source code to those cybersecurity experts who sign up to test the system. Well, early last month, as an announcement at the Swiss Post website noted in an interview with Dennis Morell, the head of e-voting at Swiss Post was not losing any sleep about the public hack testing of its system. Morell told the interviewer, I'm sleeping very well, all things considered, and with good reason. He said, uh, the Swiss Post e-voting system has been in operation for a number of years. We perform these sorts of intrusion tests in-house every two months or so in conjunction with specialists from a wide variety of units. And he noted they've had absolutely no problems to date. Swiss Post has boasted that the system, developed by an international voting vendor named Seitel, which is a leader in developing various Internet and other voting and online reporting solutions for national and regional elections in some 42 countries, including at least 1,400 counties here in the U.S., Um, Swiss Post has voted that that system has already been examined thoroughly through professional audits paid for by Swiss Post with KPMG, an auditing giant, though it has never made the auditing reports public or indicated if anything significant got changed as a result of those audits. That, according to longtime cybersecurity reporter Kim Zetter at Vice.com's Motherboard last week. So with public test period uh, now ending, 
How did it go? Well, according to Zetter, not very well. Uh, her recent report at Motherboard begins, quote, an international group of researchers who have been examining the source code for an Internet voting system Switzerland plans to roll out this year have found a critical flaw in the code that would allow someone to alter votes without detection. Yeah, that sort of seems to be a problem. I wonder how Mr. Morell is uh, sleeping tonight. Joining us now to explain what the researchers found, what it means for the Swiss e-voting system, and frankly, what it may mean or should mean for similar schemes being considered for use here in the U.S. Uh, for our own crucial 2020 elections and beyond is Kim Zetter. As I said, she's a longtime cybersecurity and national security journalist and author, having written hundreds of stories for Wired News, now frequently found at Vice.com's Motherboard and at The New York Times, where in all cases she has broken innumerable stories of great national import over on the uh, never-ending security concerns of electronic voting and tabulation. She's also author of Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet, and the launch of the world's first digital weapon. And by the way, she's also one of the very few journalists that has stayed focused on the threat of e-voting-related issues as long or maybe even longer than I have, if you can believe such a thing. And I couldn't be more appreciative of that. Kim Zetter, it's been quite a while, but welcome back to the show. <laughs> well, that's quite an introduction. Thanks, Brad. <laughs> well, uh, it is all true. I'm glad you're still on this beat, Kim. Really glad. Uh, so uh, to that end, in Switzerland, uh, how'd that test go? What did the independent researchers find once they were given a chance to, to look at that code? Well, what's interesting is that these researchers weren't actually even part of that independent testing. Um, what happened was that the Swiss law requires them to make the source code uh, public mm -hmm. for people to examine, and so they opened the source code, opened, uh, they gave, made the source code available only to people who were actually registered mm -hmm. for that public pen testing that you described. But someone didn't like the conditions under which um, you had to follow in order to register and get access to that source code. Mm -hmm. So they took that source code and posted it online and made it available to anyone. <laughs> and so the researchers in this case actually looked at that, that source code that was leaked online. So they're not part of the public pen test. And just in looking at that for about a week's time, no more than that, they found a serious flaw essentially a backdoor in the cryptography scheme that would allow someone to alter votes but make it look like the votes haven't been altered at all. So what happens is you, as a, a voter, will uh, go online and mark their ballot and submit it to the system. And then the system shuffles the ballots through a series of servers mm -hmm. in order to separate them from the voter to make it anonymous. And those ballots get encrypted and decrypted by each server as they're being shuffled. But there's a problem in the way that it's done, in the way that they implemented it, that would allow someone to swap out the legitimate ballots and votes during that process and put in completely rogue ones. But the system is supposed to have a check in it that's mm -hmm. supposed to design to ensure that the ballots that go into that encryption process and come out of that decryption process are the exact same ballots. But there's a flaw in that um, proof um, that verifies that those ballots are the same. And so, therefore, that would allow someone to swap out the votes and ballots while the proof still seemed to show 
that the ballots were the same. Uh, which is, major. well, yeah, <laughs> it, very major. Uh, it, just to put it simply, as you do in the story, the flaw could allow someone to swap out all of the legitimate ballots and replace them with fraudulent ones all without detection. Now, first, Kim, I, I'm I'm sort of struck by not not just not just without detection, yeah. but so that the system is actually because there's a proof in the system that's designed to uh-huh. verify, and the proof itself would still show uh, would still seem to show that the ballots were the same. So it's not just even without detection, but while the election officials actually think that they have proof that nothing has changed. You, you would have evidence they'd be able to say, uh, well, here, here's the proof that everything is perfect, everything yes. is, is counted as cast. I mean, I'm sort of actually, I was struck off the bat there, Kim, when you mentioned that it, it, sort of the, the hack test itself was hacked, that the <laughs> that the, informa- the source code was actually released and it wasn't even supposed to be. That alone is uh, should be instructive here. But uh, this private company, CIDL, uh, they work on elections in the U.S. as well, but they don't currently run uh, Internet elections here, mostly just election night website reporting systems, uh, which also offer some security vulnerabilities. But uh, well, well, yeah. so, so what they do in the U.S. is so it's not just election night reporting. Mm-hmm. They, they operate systems that deliver um, ballots to voters overseas, mm-hmm. primarily to military um, voters and residents that are outside the U.S. So those voters can actually receive ballots through a CIDL system. They just can't submit them back uh, digitally. They have to actually print them out, um, hand mark mm-hmm. the ballots, and then send them in the mail. Um, but it is a delivery system. Right. And there is some vul- vulnerabilities there, but they don't count votes per se. Yeah. Uh, for whatever that's worth. But in this case, uh, they're the, the, the developers behind the Swiss system, um, uh, they, uh, you report they downplayed the researchers' findings. Uh, how so? Well, um, what they said was the researchers uh, gave them a courtesy um, preview of their research, mm-hmm. and Swiss Post uh, passed it off to Seidel. I don't think the Swiss Post was very happy um, with the flaw that the researchers found. Not that they were unhappy with the researchers. Mm-hmm. I think that they were unhappy with Seidel and um, gave it to Seidel, and Seidel uh, supposedly fixed the issue. So Swiss Post was kind of downplaying it at the same time they also weren't happy with it. Um, it's unclear, however, if the fix that CIDL did uh, actually works. The researchers who know what the, the, the basis of the fix is say that if it's implemented correctly, it should fix the problem. But because CIDL got the implementation wrong the first time around, there's no reason to believe that they get the fix right as well. And the other major concern, and there's a lot of them here, but the other major concern uh, is that in in trying to defend this system, uh, it seems that uh, Seidel and or Swiss Post was saying, well, you know, this isn't that bad because you would have to be, you would have had to have been an insider to <laughs> exploit this, uh, this, this issue. Uh, it, it, do, am I characterizing what, sort of their defense of, of the issue? Yeah, so we hear this um, quite a lot from U.S. officials as well. Election officials all the time mm-hmm. say, uh, when, when researchers point out vulnerabilities that could be hacked, the election officials say, well, that would be illegal for someone to do, <laughs> as if no one would ever do anything illegal um, to alter an election. And yep. it's the same thing with the Swiss, uh, Swiss Post comment, that you would have to be an insider. Well, that's precisely 
the kind of attacker that you're worried about. You're not. We're not just worried about outsiders remotely hacking into a system, but we're at, we're actually worried about privileged insiders mm-hmm. who can take their time and have the knowledge of the system to do an expert manipulation of it. And this is an important issue that I want to underscore, and I, I spoke about it in the last segment. I've been speaking about it for many years, but uh, after the 2004 election in Ohio, which was itself controversial, there was a, uh, a so-called Blue Ribbon Commission that was formed. It was headed up by James Baker and former President Jimmy Carter, who is now, as of today, the longest, uh, the, the oldest living former president. Uh, and what they found was that the greatest threat to Elections, voting systems actually come from insiders. They write in their report, quote, there is no reason to trust insiders in the election industry any more than in any other industry. This is a concept that over the years I have found both election officials and vendors don't seem to fully appreciate or care about or or even they become offended by it. And we're talking about thousands and thousands of both election officials and private voting system vendors and programmers who have access to the electronic systems, even without online voting here in the U.S., but just to the to the touchscreen systems and to the uh, computer tabulators and so forth that we use in this country. Yeah, I think that, I mean, so I, I get that they're insulted that anyone would, would imply that insiders might um, alter an election. Um, but, you know, we have a history of elections being manipulated by insiders, whether they were voting machines or just, you know, paper ballots in the past, uh, where ballots go missing, ballot boxes go missing, things like that. So insiders are perfectly placed to do this kind of manipulation. Um, essentially, you know, we should have a voting system where we're not required to trust anyone. We're not required to trust um, election officials. We're not required to trust the vendors. We're not required to trust the voting machine itself. We should have a system that can be audited independently of all of those parties in order to verify the election results. And that's really in the best interest of everyone because, you know, when things go wrong, there's naturally a finger pointing at, if not an outsider, then an insider. And it's in the interest of election officials and vendors both uh, to have a system that can be independently audited so that they themselves are never, uh, you know, uh, in, in a suspect position. Thank you. Thank you for saying so. I've been uh, trying to point that out, and I've even been on air with, you know, election officials at various times who tell me, Brad, to a certain extent, you have to trust your election officials. One of them famously uh, from Monterey County, California, some years ago, told me that on air. And then a few uh, months later, he was actually charged with 60 counts of fraud and all sorts of other things that he pled no contest to. So it's not meant as an insult to anybody. The, the point is the public need to know that their elections have been uh, uh, carried out fairly and they need to be able to oversee those elections by themselves. And I'm concerned um, not just with online systems, but with a lot of systems that I know uh, you have seen that have been now spreading, even all of these years later, to places like Georgia, to my own home county of Los Angeles County, Texas, Pennsylvania, Ohio, that will uh, print computer-printed, computer-marked ballots that are being spreading quickly before 2020 and being supported by Republicans and Democrats alike, even though the cybersecurity experts that I talk to all say hand-marked paper ballots are the way to go. Is there any alternative that you see to what seems obvious, 
hand-marked paper ballots that we can all oversee? Yeah, you're talking about the what are what are known as ballot marking devices. Mm-hmm. Um, just a quick explanation of what those are for our listeners. Uh, this is a, a system. It's designed to be accessible for disabled voters mm-hmm. or voters who need the ballots in in a different language. Um, it uses a touch screen in most places, so the voter can go to a computer. Uh, marker selections on the screen, but that device doesn't actually tabulate the votes. Um, all it does is then print out a ballot on paper. Mm-hmm. The voter can view the paper to make sure that the machine marked them correctly, and then the ballot gets put into an optical scan machine that actually tabulates the votes. So technically, there isn't anything wrong with those systems as long as you do a manual audit of those paper ballots afterwards to make sure that the scanner has recorded those ballots accurately. And you also need to make sure, so that so one of the biggest complaints of the ballot marking devices is that some of these systems print out ballots that have a barcode on them, mm-hmm. and that when you put the ballot through the scanner, instead of reading the human readable portion of the ballot that the viewer has actually, or that the voter has actually examined and verified, the scanner will read what's in that barcode, and that hidden barcode. Mm-hmm. And so the concern then is that that barcode could have something uh, manipulated inside of it, and so the the voter looks at the ballot, sees one thing, but that the scanner has actually seen something else. Again, if you do a manual audit afterwards and check the human-readable portion of the ballot against the digital count, you'll be able to see and catch something like that. So um, in all cases, again, you shouldn't trust any system. You shouldn't trust a hand-marked paper ballot either if it's going through um, a digital scanner, because, again, you're dealing with electronic software. So the biggest fix for all of this stuff, no matter whether the ballot is created uh, by hand by the voter or created by a machine uh, marked by the voter, the reassurance that we have can only come from a manual audit of those paper ballots against the digital tally. Uh, we've been uh, speaking with a number of uh, cybersecurity experts in recent weeks and months as they're looking at moving to such a system, a BMD system for all voters in Georgia, that, as you describe. And among the folks we've talked to, Professor Rich DeMello of Georgia Tech, uh, who uh, recently uh, came out with a study finding that, no, we can't even, never mind that those barcodes that no humans can read, we can't have any confidence after an election that the uh, computer-marked ballots were actually verified accurately by the voters who apparently don't uh, look at those uh, printed ballots quite often. He also found that there's another system that uh, is being used currently in Kansas that prints out the ballot but then allows that same paper ballot to go back through the printer again before it is scanned, at which time new marks can be added to the ballot. And uh, finally, uh, Philip Stark, the professor from UC Berkeley, who invented post-election risk-limiting audits, says that uh, auditing those sorts of systems are actually meaningless. All of them are calling for hand-marked paper ballots as the most verifiable system. Yeah, but again, uh, the the hand-marked paper ballot still has to go through an audit. So... Mm -hmm. You know, if a voter hand marks that ballot, and if the voter doesn't review that ballot, yeah. and oftentimes they're not going to, you know, they're going to hand mark that ballot, they may not fill it out correctly, or they may have missed things, and that ballot still goes through and gets counted. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that the voter verifying the ballot, you know, that's going to be an issue in any election, no matter how the ballot is filled out. 
So I, I think the, the point is that the, the best that we can do, though, is to still do that manual audit. I think that to that issue regarding the, that, um, that Dominion machine mm-hmm. that goes back through a scanner twice yeah. is a concern. So I think that the systems um, uh, under, undergoing testing and things like that have to meet a certain level of security um, so those things that aren't, aren't done and that the source code has to be examined. Um, but I think ultimately the way to go is um, to a, a manual audit of the ballots afterwards. The reason I, I sort of raised that point and these others is because, Kim, as long as you have been uh, c- covering these stories as I have been covering, it's sort of like deja vu all over again. Nothing personable, personal, but reading your story in Switzerland, it was almost the least surprising story of the year. We see this all the time. Uh, the companies uh, or the jurisdictions come out with new votes. Voting systems, they say they have tested them. Uh, in the case of the U.S., they give them to the Elections Assistance Commission. They certify them with these private companies. In Switzerland, we had KPMG, you know, a professional uh, company who has supposedly looked at these uh, systems uh, over and over again. And yet, as soon as they are released to, in some fashion, to the public, to independent uh, testers and cybersecurity voting system experts, they find problems like this. This happens over and over again in virtually every system that we have seen, Kim. Yeah, I, so I think that the um, the issue here is that there's never been a high bar for any of these systems. And because they've been closed-source proprietary systems, uh, the vendors have allowed to really do uh, create sloppy systems um, that no one and no one has really demanded uh, more secure systems. We're seeing a, a change in the public's view now. Um, after the 2016 election, I say thank you to the Russians uh, for drawing <laughs> attention to the matter, because without that 2016 scare, um, we wouldn't have the attention focusing on voting systems now and the call for manual uh, for paper ballots and manual mm-hmm. audits. Um, there was a story that I wrote last week um, about a new system mm-hmm. that is be de- being designed by the Defense uh, Department's uh, DARPA Institute, mm-hmm. um, a $10 million contract given to a third-party company uh, to develop what would be an open-source uh, secure voting system using new secure methods. Mm-hmm. And if you have an open-source system where the, soft core, the software is, is not proprietary and is not secret, then you have the ability for people to examine it and, and first of all, catch uh, problems with the system, catch problems with the security in the first place. It doesn't solve all problems. You still need to have a way of verifying that that open source software that everyone has examined is actually the software that's installed on the voting machines and hasn't been altered after it was installed on the right, voting machine. Right. So that's a separate issue, but yeah. that's, that's, um, that's uh, resolvable. Um, but I think that that's really the direction that I think everyone has figured out that we need to go, um, is to have an open source transparent system, uh, and then some way of verifying that that open software hasn't been altered on systems, and then ultimately a way of verifying that that software actually recorded uh, paper ballots accurately. Yeah, and I want to thank you for that story as well. I I hope to talk to the developers uh, about that as well, because as you might imagine, Kim, I remain uh, dubious of that as well, but, you know, that's my job (laughs) to be uh, dubious and skeptical of all of this. Uh, Very quickly, just to uh, sort of bring this back to both 
online elections, Internet voting, because uh, the system you're talking about from DARPA, I don't believe, is meant as an Internet system, and to bring it back to U.S. elections. Uh, One of the points that Dr. David Jefferson of Livermore National Labs, I'm sure you know him, a longtime e-voting advisor out here uh, to, I think, five consecutive California secretaries of state. Uh, He was on the show some time ago and he told us that really there is no way to do a legit test of an Internet voting system because the tactics that real hackers might use would actually be illegal to carry out. Uh, even in a mock Internet election, is there really any way uh, to solve this problem? I mean, I've, I've been told that uh, Internet voting is really unsolvable. And if you look at the fact that you can't even do a, a proper test, is there uh, something to that point? Uh, well, I, I think I disagree with David on, on that regard. I mean, if it is a proper test and you're telling the testers you can hack this legally, um, do, a, do a pen test of it, and, and you don't have... Um, people going out of the scope of the test, um, then you, you can do a test of the system. The problem with these, these tests, though, are often that only parts of the system is actually open to the scope of the attack. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so often what happens is they'll say, well, you can, you can try to hack the public Internet, the public-facing Internet system that the voters will use, but you can't try and get into our back-end system by, for instance, doing a phishing attack against the election officials. Right. And, of course, that's the way that an attacker would actually do it. They yeah. wouldn't necessarily come into the front door. So there are limitations to those systems, um, and if the scope isn't entirely open, to an attacker to pen test every possible uh, method of getting into the system, then it's really kind of uh, pointless and useless. And I think that's sort of his point. You can't do phishing attacks. You can't do denial of service attacks. You know, you can't knock out the Internet in a, in a particular uh, uh, part of town where the test is being held, which you might see in, uh, in an attack on an online uh, election. Um, finally, uh, Kim, do you share my concern? I mentioned at the top of the segment here um, about this mandate from the DNC that state Democratic parties must include some form of remote voting uh, with their caucuses this year in the presidential nominating co- uh, uh, contest. Steve Rosenfeld has been uh, one of the few folks who has been trying to look into this and figure out what Democrats have in mind. I don't know what they have in mind. We are really months away now from from this, uh, you know, from the beginning of the caucuses. And they're going to be essentially testing these on a live presidential election. I don't know if you've done any reporting on this, but do you share the concerns that I do about this? Uh, I haven't looked in to see, to see what the final resolution was. I know that they were talking about doing it over the phone, but I don't know what that meant, if they were uh, sending a ballot and then someone prints it out from their, their phone or if it's actually um, transmitting votes via the phone. Um, what often happens with these uh, systems, however, is that the election officials will make the claim, well, you do um, online banking all the time from your phone, mm-hmm. so why, why not be submitting ballots? Um, but online banking also is not secure. The difference with online banking, however, we, the reason that we accept it is because um, uh, customers have no liability with online banking. Mm. If your device is compromised and someone steals money from your bank, you have recourse and you can go to the bank and the bank will restore that money. You don't have that kind of resource with an election system. If your vote gets stolen, there's no way of getting it back. Um, also with banking, they have ledgers and accounting so mm-hmm. that they can see exactly where money went and what happened to it. And if money disappears from your account, 
uh, it shows up in the ledgers. Um, with online voting, uh, it can be done like like the researchers in the Swiss voting system showed. Uh, it they can be done in a way that the votes are swapped out that you actually never even know. There's no right. trace of it. So when people always say that, well, we do a lot of things over our phone that are secure, why isn't voting secure? It's really not a proper analogy because uh, doing anything over your phone is not secure. Um, we, just that we have different ways of uh, catching those other uh, ways of using our phone right. in, in other systems. And, and because we have, uh, you know, with banking, I can go back and look and make sure a transaction was correct from... Ten years ago, I can go back, the bank can go back, the credit card companies, whatever, we can all go back. But with a secret ballot system, once that vote is dropped into that box, whether it's a virtual box or not, it's done. And, you know, and and, and that's what makes this uh, such a, a, a difficult problem to solve. Even if elections are secure, there is really no way for the public I'm concerned when you're dealing with electronic systems like this for the public to know that the system is secure. And I've long argued that's uh, as much of a threat to our, our, our democratic elections as anything else. The erosion it allows in confidence uh, in our representative democracy, uh, Kim, even if there were no problems in 2016, even if Russia or insiders or anybody else, uh, if they did nothing, if the election in 2016 was absolutely secure, that's fantastic. But if the public can't know it was secure, uh, I've long argued that in and of itself is a threat to our democracy. Do, do you share that concern? Yes, I, it comes back to my point where I said we shouldn't have to trust the systems and we shouldn't have to trust the election officials. Uh, we should be showing that the results were accurate, um, regardless of whether or not um, anything was secure. And uh, that's the, the reason for these uh, manual, for the paper ballots and manual audits, is that we can know um, the results. We have a backup, right? We can know the results even if uh, it turns out the machines have been compromised. I have concerns about those audits, too. As long as KPMG isn't uh, running them, maybe they'll be okay. I don't know. We'll, t we'll, we'll uh, bicker about that uh, the next time you join us, Kim. Really great talking to you. Uh, Kim Zetter, longtime cybersecurity, national security journalist. Find her work at motherboard.vice.com. Follow her on the Twitters where, she'll, uh, where she breaks all kinds of stories at Kim Zetter, uh, including many of her uh, landmark reports at New York Times. Kim, greatly appreciate you joining us today. Keep up the good work, and uh, maybe someday we won't have to cover these stories at all anymore. <laughs> Let's hope. Thanks a lot, Brad. You bet. Appreciate Thank it. you. Okay, i got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. You can download any Bradcast ever for free at bradblog.com. You can also drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. And as ever, my thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us on your public airwaves. Couldn't do it without you. All right, that is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 